Hello, welcome to episode 14 of the Aim High and Achieve podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Mungo Munjim. Paul, for over 25 years, has excelled as a cameraman, specialising in adventure TV. Over the course of his career, he's travelled to over 95 different countries, filming with all the major broadcasters and working alongside the likes of Ben Stiller, Will Ferrell, Bear Grylls, Kate Winslet, to name just a few. Following his demand in Adventure TV, Mungo stepped out from behind the camera to front the show Expedition Mungo. He has also published two books, Mungo the Cameraman and Mungo Living the Dream. Paul, it's great to talk to you. Thanks very much for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Excuse well, so, me, stop calling me Paul. I know. Well, I, I, I don't feel like maybe we'll get to Mungo in a bit. I didn't just want to. No one calls me Paul anymore except for my dad. Okay. And I, and I don't remember you being there at the birth, are you? No, I, I didn't want to go Mungo straight away like I'm your best mate from the first. No, it's fine. no call me Mungo, mate. I prefer it. Mungo. Okay. So where does Mungo come from? Obviously, it's a take on your second name, yeah? Yeah, my surname is Munjim, uh, Paul Munjim. And uh, and I lived in Australia for four years, uh, around kind of 18 to 22. And as you know, yeah, they'd love nothing better than to give people nicknames. So very quickly, Munjim became Mungo. Oh, good day, Mungo. And it kind of okay. stuck with really. So I like to liken it to Sting or Bono. <laughs> ah, okay. Yeah, no, yeah. no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, no, but it just it, it just stuck, and then and then everybody, everybody in the TV industry knows me as Mungo, and I even some of my yeah even some of my mates or certainly colleagues don't actually know my real name. They wow. just know me as Mungo. So yeah. Munjim is not a uh, it's not a common name. I don't think. No, Munjim was um, as far as we know originally French or Flemish. So Monjim, um, yeah, and we came. Um, my my uncle is a doctor of history, actually, and he traced it back to coming over, kind of William the Conqueror and all that years ago. So wow. we came over from the mainland to England. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. My wife has just done a DNA heritage test. Ah. Her, her her surname is Kilcourse, so straight straight away you go that oh, that's Irish. It's got to be. Yeah. you know irish and i think a family were from county mayo so so she did the dna test and it turns out that she's something like half or one third scandinavian which right. is actually where we've moved to so we moved from manchester to norway eight or ten years ago or whatever and she's almost come back full circle come, on herself yeah yeah it's, it's crazy classic. yeah uh but paul i i uh mungo sorry sorry <laughs> i uh obviously wanted you on as a guest on the podcast because i absolutely loved expedition mungo okay. um which for those who don't know go and check it out it's a great tv show on i i see it on discovery now because i have discovery yeah. uh plus or over in norway so uh yeah it's a great show and it's from a genre that i really love and it's like the the river monsters kind of Jeremy Wade, I first started watching that series right. years and years and years ago. And it's kind of along the same, um, I don't know the TV word, but it's the same kind of genre as the way that you film the show. Yeah. Was that something Was that something you were conscious of? Yeah, I mean, in, in term yeah, I mean, look, the, the, the way it works is that the broadcaster puts out, so Animal Planet and Discovery, who are kind of the same thing, Animal Planet are owned by Discovery. Um, so they put out the, River Monsters was coming to an end after like you know dozens of series. Mm. They were looking for a replacement for it, um, so they kind of put it out to tender. And then there was a, a production company in London called Blast, and I had a friend who was working there, um, and he said, "Look, yeah, we want to put you forward for doing doing a show about you know you being a cameraman, but kind of stepping in front of the camera and talking about some of the stories that you've experienced." Yeah, in your travels, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, would you be up for it? And I kind of went, well, yeah. I don't know if I can do it, but 
I'm open to giving it a go. So we literally, I was driving my Land Rover Defender around London at the time, and he had his iPhone, and he just started filming me and chatting to me and asking me questions. Um, and then he cut that together and sent it off to Discovery and said, look, here's the idea for the show. Uh, in fact, it was a different show <laughs> before it got commissioned. That's another story. I'll come to that. Um, but, you know, here's the guy we'd like to put forward, Mungo, who's a well-seasoned cameraman, you know, Bear's right-hand man, uh, Bear Grylls. Um, you know, what do you think? And they just went, love it. You know, tell us more. And, you know, can we meet him? Can we? They gave us a load of money to do a proper sizzle tape. So we went over to the Amazon uh, for about a week to go and shoot over there and handle some big snakes and just put me in different environments and different situations to see how I handled it. Um, and of course, all of that for me was pretty run of the mill from what I knew already. So I was very comfortable doing that. And then one thing led to another. And, you know, finally, it's like all these things, you know, it's like when you're trying to buy a house, isn't it? You have to jump through a million hoops before you finally get those keys in your hand. Yeah. And in the same way, when you get uh, approached about a show on TV, it's a, it takes a, a long time before you actually get on the plane and go to shoot it. Yeah, so, but but that's how it happens. So it's kind of through friends. Um, yeah, but it's good. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because when it started off, we had a different idea about what we wanted to do. What we wanted to do originally was an idea about making a series on where animals and humans have conflict. So, for example, where, you know, you see polar bears are starting to encroach on towns and stuff because they scavenge and because they've got food available to them they come into the communities okay. and obviously they're bloody dangerous so that causes issues and then there's conflict so do they cull them do they shoot them do they scare them off what do you do mm. um, this has happened worldwide you know where in the amazon rainforest a lot of the amazons being cut down on a rapid basis for logging and uh, farming uh, as in cattle farming um, and so, again, there's conflict of the wildlife and man again. And there, there are some incredible stories in um, in South Africa and Namibia where some of the refugees who are coming down from northern Africa are actually crossing over illegally into the Kruger National Park in South Africa. And there was a pride of lions that were basically, you know, it was like a free meal for them. So all wow. these all these refugees were coming over, and some of the rangers in the Kruger Park were finding, you know, multiple times they were finding shoes and bits of humans left behind, but the shoes had feet in them still, Jesus because God. because the lions had eaten, yeah, eaten the people. So it's pretty full on. And anyway, yeah, but fascinating stories and and yeah, a real issue of life and humans. Anyway, so that's originally what we went in with, and they kind of went, mm. oh yeah, it sounds great. But then the big bosses decided that they wanted to be a bit more, they, they didn't want to risk moving away from river monsters. They wanted to make it a bit more mythological, um, of which I was kind of up for, but I did think it's a bit like, it's a bit like being asked to go out and shoot Santa Claus. Yeah, if something doesn't exist, then how are you going to shoot it and make a story about it? I, I was going to make a point about that because what one thing that I think is so great about the show is that whilst you have the sort of cryptozoology aspect of it, it's not that. So it's not that when you go on YouTube and you put Bigfoot in and you have these sort of wacky guys who are, you know, out in the middle of nowhere doing witchcraft and all that. It's not like that. You know, it, it is based on real, real facts. You yeah, know, totally, actual. Totally. Yeah, so, so so the way it kind of worked out for us was, okay, well, if that's the case, then you know, we, we revisited stories that we knew of and had heard of where there had been conflict within, peop within people groups and some form of animal, be it a mythological beast or whatever, or a tribal spiritual belief. Um, and then we'd say, we'd go and investigate it and basically say, well, if it's not a dog-headed pig monster... Mm. Um, in Namibia, then what could it be? So then we explore the local wildlife and say, well, you know, the injuries were this, that, that's more kind of linked to a boa constrictor or a hyena or whatever it is. Um, and, and it was in Namibia, actually, where we got our, 
our one and only result. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, where we actually solved it as being the brown the brown hyena. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I love the one with the snake because mm. the, the, there was no doubt that in recent history there must have been huge anacondas and titana boa and there's there is a crypto thing about the the dinosaur that was still in the congo i don't know if you've ever heard of this one yeah there was still sort of reports of there could be something in the congo it's so massive and it's sort of never been explored so like the postazukas yeah i think so yeah, it, it it was an old Vice documentary from sort of like the, the when the when YouTube sort of first came out, there was a Vice documentary about this dinosaur in the Congo, and um, very going back very you know a very long time ago. So there there must be that you know the the world is so huge there could be a there could be one last thing to discover, right. and 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 I kind of love the fact that you know you. You, you you take the real aspect of it yeah but also there's that one percent chance you know especially with the big snake uh there is a one percent chance there could be something still yet to yeah, be yeah. discovered you know well, and obviously sorry did, did you see the liberia episode yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah because the liberian one was was exactly along those lines because and we even spoke to a i think it's a uh university of miami i think or florida and there was a crocodilian expert. Um, and he'd spent his whole, you know, his whole academic life looking into this. And he just said, you know, who are we to say that these things don't exist? You know, I mean, humans love to think that we know everything, but the truth is that's ridiculous. You know, and, and one of the one of the whole purposes of science is admitting that we don't know everything. Do you know what I mean? So the whole point of science is to look and to try and discover and work it all out. But there's so much we don't know. And when you look at Liberia, which has been ravaged by, um, uh, ravaged by, sorry, I'm just going to put my phone on to voice message, ravaged by uh, civil war, but then also by Ebola, um, deep, deep forest. And that's, that neighbours the DRC, uh, wow. Republic of Congo. Um, you know, there, there are people in there who say that they've seen something which matches the postazukas, which is like mm. a kind of crocodile but stands more upright, sort of thing. Okay. And, and I interviewed people and said to them, you know, you know, but couldn't it have been a crocodile? And they kind of looked at me and said, "Look, we know what crocodiles are. It's not yeah. a crocodile, you know." Mm. So, yeah. so you know, in places like that, where it really is still an unknown wilderness and mm. you know men haven't explored every inch of it and mm. you know it took us three days to get there by plane by four by four and by motorbike and on foot wow um it's in the middle of nowhere yeah so who, yeah. who are we to say it's, it's like have you seen the forest galante extinct or alive show no that is really good and it's yeah, on right. the it's a similar lines to what you do yeah where where he is he is looking for basically animals that are extinct or yeah. alive. And he, he, he has some success. He finds a couple, um, one in the Amazon, um, a, croc- a crocodile or an alligator in the uh, a caiman. He finds a caiman in, in the Amazon. He finds, and also there's the, there's the saula that he finds in Indonesia, which, no, he doesn't find it, sorry. The last one died. And they go into this cave in Indonesia that's just, man has never set foot there. You know, there yeah. could be anything there. But that's a great show to uh it's mm. along the same lines as yours. It's it's really good. But how did you find going from behind the camera to then having the confidence to be in front of the camera? Was that something that naturally well, came to you or to to a degree? I mean, in the past I've kind of, you know, I've been in front of the camera a couple of times before. Um I I, I did a thing with Charlie Borman where I travelled from Ireland to Sydney. Uh, for BBC Two, Overland and Sea, um, so that was just three of us doing that. So I spent some, you know, a bit of time doing video diaries and stuff like that on the journey, which took us four months. Um, yeah, we did like twenty-five countries in four months using one hundred and twelve forms of transport, going from Ireland all the way over to Sydney, Australia, not losing um, just by not by flying. Um, but wow. by land and sea, it was amazing. Um, anyway, uh, but then also from a kind of technical experience point of view, if you 
if you imagine, um, you know, I've worked with cameras for 30 plus years and I've worked with presenters and, you know, people who are new to it. So I know what looks good on camera because I've been looking at it for so many yeah, years. Yeah. And, and it, the secret is so simple. The secret is if you can be yourself and if you're confident enough just to say, I'm just going to be myself and like it or lump it, you know, you can criticize me or you don't like me or whatever. I don't really care. Um, then you, you'll come across okay. And, you know, I'm confident that that will come across authentically. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't find it difficult, to be honest. I mean, I, I guess the only thing was, I suppose sometimes you can hide behind the camera, you know, if you're having an off day or you kind of, you know, you're just feeling a bit down or you're knackered, you've been away from home or you're sick. At one point in Liberia, I got really sick and literally in between, in between kind of pieces to camera, I was vomiting and then literally kind of hanging on a minute, spewing and then going back and then carrying on. Um, and, you know, so I, I think on that front, um, you know, it's harder in a way, but it's physically a lot less harder than having to lug camera kit around. Mm. <laughs> Although we did do some of that, to be fair. I've filmed some of it as well. I could, I saw in one, I can't remember which, which one it was exactly, but you you put the cam you get back behind the camera and you're just like yeah. a little like a little kid on christmas day i could just <laughs> i could just see it in your eyes you kind of like got the camera back and you were like yeah yeah you know you could just see the passion in your face and then i yeah. think a, i think a bloody boat tips over or something That's and right. you have to like go and yeah, rescue yeah, everybody yeah. and it's like That's right. and it, it just made me think of like it's it's hard enough to it's hard enough to film in a controlled environment what is how do you sort of manage filming in that kind of environment everybody's sort of uh tempers might be getting flayed it's hot it's you've been going all day you're a tight-knit crew you know how important a is it to pick the right crew because it only takes one little bad apple in that crew to throw everything so how do you sort of go about that that side of things in those environments well i think these are great questions steve really good questions um i think no, number one crew is everything your team is everything and you're you're exactly right if there's one bad apple it mm -hmm. sours everything i mean i've been there and done it over the years yeah. and that's why ultimately you you choose your mates so that's why they say, you know, the old adage that media is not what you know, but who you know. It really is. But that's for good reason. Because yeah. if you are, especially with what I do, if you're stuck out in the middle of nowhere with somebody who gets homesick or just can't handle living in a hammock for weeks on end mm -hmm. or uh, can't deal with the insects or just the pressure of being on, you know, on call the whole time, um, then it's a nightmare and it can ruin the experience for, for everyone. Um, so you've got to be of a certain character. And I know for a start, uh, I've got no, I'm under no illusions that there are far better cameramen than me technically, but I know that I've got a really good temperament for, for that kind of thing. Cause I quite, I quite get off on it. I quite yeah. enjoy the endurance. I quite like the hardship. Um, I love the challenge of it. You know, it's like, it's like endurance sports, isn't it? You know, not everybody wants to go and run an ultra marathon, but some people just love it. Um, and it's just part of you. So if you are one of those people, those are exactly the people that you want. Um, and, and, yeah, and even those people, of course, you get tired and you get angry. And I, I, I've got a real problem with hanger. So if I'm hungry, I'm horrible. Me horrible. Too. <laughs> and, and often when I meet a new director for the first time, I say to him, you know, I'll be fine. Just Just feed me. If you feed me, I'll be eating out of your hand. But if you don't, there's going to be trouble. Yeah. Um, and then there are a few uh, a few directors who will you know pay testament to that, I'm sure. But yeah, but but a team is everything. Um, and yeah, you know, and it is hard um, without a doubt. But there's always an end in sight. Yeah, you know, if it's three if it's three weeks or a month or six weeks or whatever. Yeah, you know, it's it's only a limited amount of time, isn't it? And I think I think a bit of hardship is good for everyone, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. And it, I mean, even even if you take uh, com compare it to, I mean, in, in my kind of my my sort of day job, not so much now. But I, I would be away from home for a week or a couple of weeks. And and if you were with the wrong couple of people when you were doing a, an away job or something, 
it was pretty hellish and it was it just made things not very enjoyable whereas sure. if you were if you're with somebody who is the same as you let's you know it it was it was okay you know yeah. albeit, you know yeah. and and that's kind of one thing i love to explore on this sort of podcast is people who who are basically doing the things they love to do and i my daughter's 15 now and she's looking at career paths and i I'm, i keep explaining to her now, if I could go back and pick exactly what I want to do, I wouldn't pick my career now. I'd do it because it's 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 okay pay and it is, I've done it for 25 years. Yeah. But I wouldn't choose it again. So now it's a crucial time that you pick what you're passionate about. And you're a classic example. You're passionate about your day job, which yeah. is super important, you know, to, and your passion comes through in the show. And obviously, as you're talking now, you, yeah. you can hear it, you know. Um, how, how did you get sort of into it to start with? Was it something you were thinking about in school, in high school, or did, no, was it no, accidental? No. Or? I totally fell into it. So, I mean, I, and coming back to your daughter, I mean, isn't it ridiculous that our education system kind of requires kids of that age to be making lifelong steering decisions? It's mental, isn't it? Yeah. Although I, mean, I suppose you've got to steer towards something. Yeah, I mean, Olivia is in, uh, she's in a kind of sports college at the moment because she was a very good swimmer. So she was a high-level swimmer in Norway. So she went to a sports college where it was focused on sport. Yeah. She she leaves that college now. It works a bit different in, in Norway. So she will leave that college, go to like a sixth form college, sorry she will leave that school go to essentially what's a sixth form college where she's just doing general schooling for two years then i think she'll probably take a year away and then go to university but when i it works a lot different to the uk system so they they're a lot more general here they don't force you into a way but they have debates about it you know what what a good career path to go to if yeah. you want to, if you want to go into nursing then you go to this particular school. If you want to go into IT, you go to this particular school. So it's a. I don't know if it's better than the UK. I'm not really too... I remember my time. I remember when I was 15 or 16 and they were like, what What do you want to be right now? And I was like, um, a solicitor, because I didn't know. And I thought that's going to be great. So I started going down, I started going down that road. Right. And then, and then it was like, no, this is a hell of a lot of work. I don't know if yeah. I'm going to do this for seven years. Yeah. And I started working with with my father, who was involved with Elevator, and then here I am now, 25 years later. So yeah, it's interesting. But but going going back to yourself, how did yeah. you sort of drop into it? Oh, well, it, it's funny because I remember when you were talking about that about what you want to do. I remember I was lining up with my mate Stephen Laslett, and we were lining up outside this classroom for careers education or careers advice. And we just thought this is a joke. You know, I, I didn't. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I just I liked girls and rugby, and that was it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, and so I went in there, and uh, no, sorry, Stephen went in first, and he came out with a smirk on his face, and then I went in after him, and there was I went in there it was like this guy in a brown suit, this kind of ashen face, very serious older guy, and he said to me, "So, my Jim, you know, what what is it? You know, what what, what do you want to do, kind of, you know, for your chosen career?" And I said, well, I just thought I'd take the piss a bit. So I said, well, yeah, I'm thinking about becoming a stuntman. Yeah, just, just kind, of, kind of reel him, you know, reel him in. And he went, uh, he just looked at me and shook his head. He went, why doesn't that surprise me when the guy in front of you said that he wanted to be a cowboy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then we were from Tunbridge Wells in Kent. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, for us, it was a joke. And none of us knew what we wanted to do. I mean, I, I was good at two things at school. I was good at art and I was good at sport. So I knew I was hopeless academically. I had no interest in it at all. I learned by pressing buttons, not by reading books. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I knew that I had to play to my strengths. And I thought either I'll you know, probably join the army or something or, or I'll end up in prison. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what my future is. I didn't, really, I didn't go to a great school, so I didn't have much, you know, much future laid out for me. Um, but then I went. I ended up going to art college, and I studied fine art. So I was a painter, oil painting and stuff like that, which I loved. Mm. Uh, went originally to do graphic design, but then couldn't stand all the kind of everything had to be so perfect. 
Um, and this old art tutor, Brian, once said to me, come in at one lunchtime, and you gave me this big blank canvas, a, a palette full of, um, full of paints. And he refused to give me a brush. He gave me a palette knife, which is like a butter okay. knife. And he just said, you know, just have a play for the next hour. And I just started throwing paint onto the canvas. And I thought, this is great. So I ended up studying fine art um, after that. And then when I left there, um, uh, I finished my studies in Australia as well. I, went, I then moved to Australia, to Sydney, uh, just because I could. Why not? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so I went and studied, finished my studies there. And then I worked for a charity for a bit. And then eventually I ended up working as a youth worker in a church in South Kensington in London, not really knowing what to do with myself. Uh, so I was just killing time, really. And it was there that I met a guy who um, shared an office with another guy who's Simon Niblett, who's a well-renowned documentary cameraman. And Sai was just like, he was like the big brother that I never had. I had three older sisters, um, three ugly sisters. And then, um, and, and Simon was just like this kind of, he was doing David Attenborough documentaries, oh, wow. in the world. He had a Land Rover, he had a motorbike. And I just thought this guy's living my dream. And in fact, I, I've written a couple of books. And one of my books, the first book I wrote, um, an autobiography, I, I dedicated it to Simon. Because he was the one who gave me my my entire career, which then gave me my life. Because I, what I saw in Simon was that he was doing the whole kind of action man thing, which really appealed to me because of my physicality. But also the cameras tweaked my creativity. So it ticked yeah, yeah. the two boxes that I had. Um, so I just thought, well, yeah, this is what I've got to give it a basher. So I worked with him for only about... I don't know, probably about 18 months. Um, and then he said, um, you know, I think, I think you're ready to kind of go and shoot, you know, by yourself now. And he started to pass on work to me that he no longer wanted to do because it was a bit below him. But it was kind of beyond my years of any experience. Um, so really quickly, I was shooting things like Blue Peter videos. I was doing a bit of stuff for Children's BBC Newsround. I was doing sport. Um, and then, then my big break really was doing a Lonely Planet documentary for Channel 4, oh, okay. where I went out and did a documentary off the beaten track. Um, and this is how green I was, Steve. I went into the production house, the production company's uh, offices, and they said, well, you know, we're, we're curing up this shoot to go to Cambodia. And I thought, I, I said in my head, this is talking about sliding doors, because if I'd said what I thought... I probably wouldn't be here today. But I, in my head, I thought, oh, that'd be brilliant because I've never been to Africa before. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> for those of you who don't know, is in Southeast Asia. Anyway, so fortunately, my mouth stayed shut and um, I ended up getting the job. I blagged my way in to go into Cambodia. And then the whole world of travel documentary just like smacked me in the face and it was like an awakening. And I just thought, this is it for me. Yeah, it, it suits me. It suits my creativity. It suits my personality. It suits all the things that I can do within my comfort zone um, and a little bit out, which I like of my comfort zone. Um, and, you know, I mean, for many, many years, I just traveled the world. I used to go into pilot productions who produced it. And every year they'd give me a list of 50 countries and say, where do you want to go? And I'll just go, yeah, there, 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 there. And then oh. if it all worked out diary wise, I would just go. So I kind of broke my teeth in TV doing, you know, extreme travel documentaries, extreme travel. Um, and then I met Bear 17 years ago uh, in the Sahara Desert um, doing his first ever TV show, which was Escape to the Legion for Channel 4. I remember yeah. this. Yeah, 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 I remember, I remember it, yeah. Yeah, so that's where I met Bear and I shot that uh, along with a few other mates. Um, and then Bear and I just got on like a house on fire. And then I, you know, he very, very kindly, and I'm incredibly grateful to him that he just let me kind of ride the wave with him of where he's got to now. So I've been working with Bear for 17 years. Wow. Yeah. So I've got the scars to prove it. Yeah. And, and that's, that was actually, uh, he, he was right at the forefront of sort of this survivor man, yeah, which, totally. which eventually came. He was actually groundbreaking in, yeah. in terms well, of what, what he was doing. 
Yeah, the only other person at the time who was doing anything like it was Ray Mears. Ray Mears, yeah. yeah. And of course, Ray, you know, Ray's a, he's a master at what he does. There's no doubt about that. But he's just not very, he's just not very charismatic. No, um, no you, he's the polar opposite of yeah. the grills, isn't he? He's meth exactly. Ray Mears is methodical, is slow, every yeah, moment of his. Ray yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, whereas, whereas Bear, and, and I think this is where it kind of comes into luck, really, or fate. But what happened with Bear was he just realised that his style was far more gregarious. It was far more kind of charismatic. And it kind of just went, I mean, it just fitted perfectly into the American market. And the Americans had no one like it. They didn't have even Ray Mears, you know. Oh. So, so, so then this Bear, Bear character comes along. He's ex-Eaton. He's ex-Special Forces. You know, he's, he's, he's the posh boy who's as hard as nails. And that, who's that in real terms? That's like James Bond. And the Americans love anything to do with kind of the eccentric Brits. Um, and the fact that he's like, you know, super posh, super privileged, but also super hard and you know, he'll eat elephant shit and, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know, they just loved him. Yeah, he is the stereotypical uh, sort of way that the British special forces are sort of revered and, and looked at. Yeah. And, and, and obviously similar. I'm a big fan of Aldo Kane. I've sort yeah. of read his book, listened to his book, which is a really good book. And, and he's sort of got into, if you listen to his book, well, I listen to it on audio, but he, he got into it in a similar way. He was working on the oil rigs. He was a rope access guy. And then all of a sudden... Yeah. You, you know, being a rope access, you could hold a camera and then blah, blah, yeah. blah. And then before you know it, yeah. um, he sort of fell into it. So I'm really intrigued about how people sort of, you, you have, you don't know you're passionate at 16, but eventually somehow all these sort of roads lead to the point where where you end up where you are. I think it's really yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, when I look back now, I mean, before I got into TV, which was definitely, you know, as I said, it was, um, it suited me and I suited it. So that was almost like that serendipity kind mm -hmm. of moment um, where I just thought, this is awesome. <clears throat> My whole life, I'd kind of lived in, in two year, two year kind of stages. So I'd go and I studied art for two years. Then I went to Australia for two years. Then I stayed, then I did youth work for two years. I did youth work for another two. Then I worked for Simon for just under two years. And then I and then I started camera work. And then two years in, I kind of thought, I want to do another two years of this. Do you know what I mean? Because this is this is really floating my boat and I can see it going places. Um, but yeah, but it is interesting. I mean, I, I know Aldo. Um, I've met him a few times. Lovely guy. Um, and yeah, he, he worked behind the scenes on TV stuff. Mm -hmm. And then in the same way, kind of got the break of, you know, would you, you know, could you try something in front or would you? And mm -hmm. then, yeah, you, I think if you're the character who's like, I'll give it a go, see what yeah. happens. On, on, it was on the Steve Backshaw uh, series, okay. wasn't it? That's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, it was on the Steve Backshaw series, yeah, right. which, again, which again is filmed quite similar to, to, to yeah. you, your show, yeah, you know, yeah. with. And I really like seeing the kind of background of how the crew are. And, sure. and one thing I've always wondered is um, being, a, being a cameraman, how much work is there behind the, behind, behind the camera? So you, you, you're taking the footage, you might have two or three hours of footage. How much then work is there behind that, editing it, processing it, well, backing, it backing it up? You know, yeah. I've always been intrigued about that. Yeah, another, it's another good question, Steve. Um, you know, obviously things have changed massively. When I started, everything, you know, when I was an assistant for Simon, who was shooting on film, um, and then that went to tape, like beta cam and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And then it all became small, like, uh, I can't even remember what it's called, Super 8 stuff, yeah, Super yeah. 8 tapes, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but then, of course, it, it went. everything went digital. And then it went to discs. So we used to shoot on discs, yeah. um, which, which kind of superseded tape. Um, and then we ended up, you know, now we just shoot on the tiny little compact flashcards, mm. um, which is mental. You know, so the change we've seen is extraordinary. And also the cameras have changed from they used to be literally very mechanical. 
um, you know, even I used to have one here, but like a, you know, even like the old wind up Bolexes where you'd wind it wow. and then shoot it um, for certain effects. Um, but now the camera is, it's literally a computer with a bit of glass on the front of it. Um, so we've, we've had to adjust massively to that. Um, and with the tapes, obviously you take a tape out and as long as you kept it somewhere where tape used to sweat. So if you're in, you know, jungle or hot climates, you had to keep it cool. You'd keep it in an esky or something yeah. like that or a cool box. Um, and then you'd have to be really careful where it was shipped. Um, so if it went through, you know, you hear famous stories about whole documentaries getting wiped by going through an airport security scanner. Um, or if you took a tape onto um, the tube in London, the underground, the magnetic forces down there could play oh, wow. with the with the tape. So yeah, so it was really it was really high risk to be honest. And if you think that tape that you had is the only copy you've got, you couldn't cop well, you could have copied tapes, but you know you, you can't carry stuff like that around. No. So. So today it's a lot easier in that you have a little card. Um, you, know, you do have to back it up, but you throw it into your computer um, and then put it onto a hard drive like this sort of thing, um, like a lacy hard drive. Yeah. Um, and then you can back it up on multiple of those instantaneously. Um, and then you're away. You know? So that means that when you do fly home, you know, you can have people on separate flights. One will take a copy. I'll take a copy on a different flight. So if something happens, you've still got the, you know, the footage. Yeah. Um, but obviously that does take time. But And again, it comes down to budget and what we're doing. But it, most of the stuff I do is fairly high budget now. Um, yeah. so we'll have a, a DIT, um, like media manager, who that's their sole job. So So during the day, they might sleep back at a hotel or something. And then we come back from a hard day out in the bush and we'll yeah. hand, them, hand them that footage and they stay up until the early hours ingesting it and then copying it over and logging yeah. what's there. So, so it's changed a lot. Um, but other than that, you've also got, you know, especially if you're, I mean, I'm going out to Costa Rica shortly uh, for five weeks and then India before that in March. Um, and you know, you've got different things. So when you are in hot, humid countries, that still affects the electronics in a camera. If you get torrential, you know, monsoon rain, um, you know, if you get moisture and humidity into the camera, it, it hates it. Um, mm. Often, often the lenses are okay as long as you look after them. They can steam up if you're in and out of aircon, but there are tricks to get around that. Um, but generally, the computers are never as good as... It's like a car, isn't it? If you've got an old mechanical car, you can fix it with a bit of belt and a shoelace. But now they're also electrical. Yeah, if it goes, you're screwed, aren't you? Similar well, I've got an electric Mercedes. And, yeah. and to be honest, in the winter, because we have a lot of snow and it's minus 10, and it's been an absolute disaster. Yeah, for me, because and it's actually mal, it's got a bug in it, right. and it actually malfunctions where it locks in gear, it won't let me, it physically won't let me put it in drive or reverse, it's locked in park, and then it just says transmission malfunction. And I have to ring Mercedes, Mercedes Norway, I have to ring them, then I have to turn the car off, they do an over the air reset, and then it will drive after uh so long after 20 minutes or something but the problem is here i get you get a lot of car ferries so i'm on a lot you can go on a lot of boats to islands and things sure. if it happens on a frigging boat i'm screwed i'm just sat on the boat you know and the boat's got to go back so it's done that a few times i don't want to slag mercedes generally it's a, it's a pretty decent car you know but it's yeah. But it's got this bug in it that you just can't do but, anything about. Right. But the infrastructure of that sort of thing, it's just got, it's, it's can't catch up with the speed that it's evolving, can it? That's the no. problem. I mean, the, the, the lucky thing is in, in a country like Norway that's super rich and has yeah. five, five million people yeah. is there well, is an EV, there, there's an EV fast charger everywhere. Yeah. There's, hundred, there's hundreds of them. You, you can't not go past an EV charger that's free. Yeah. So that's that will work here. Yeah. I would I would imagine in ten years every car will be electric. 
yeah. because because it's got the money and yeah. the, the, the so few people. But yeah. in 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 the UK, oh, you not, you're never gonna. In my opinion, it's a totally different market. You're just sure. never gonna be able to do it. Mm-hmm. And that that was actually one of my next questions to you was how have you sort of embrace the technology you touched on it a little bit there embrace the evolving technology of like gopros everybody can effectively be a cameraman now so how do you how how do you kind of stay at the the forefront of it um and compete against that the way that filming has gone you know it's such a massive media now yeah well i mean you know i mean i'm an old dog and it's hard to treat me teach me new tricks um because you know i i'm i'm just not that really interested in computers i didn't mm-hmm. become a cameraman to be operating a computer you know so what i do is i'm mean, fortunately i'm senior enough now that um you know i've i'm work on big budget stuff where we have people good people who basically look after all the technology okay. and then they just hand me the camera and i can operate it better than the next guy you know so I'm totally confident in the operation of it, but when it comes to the the menus, the formats, whatever, I've got yeah, you know, I understand it a bit. Of course I do. Mm-hmm. I haven't got an interest in it at all. So I tend to take an assistant who I know is really shit hot on mm-hmm. all that, and then I just lean on them. I just say, look, this is the spec we need to shoot it at on these you know these settings, these LUTs, whatever. Mm-hmm. Can you just set it up, and then I'll I'll take over the shooting of it. So I, I concentrate very much on the relationship with the director about working out how we're going to shoot, what we're going to shoot. Um, you're entirely right about that. There are loads of benefits to technology, but you still have to go back to the basics of rudimentary storytelling in order to tell a story through moving picture. So, for example, yesterday I went and did a camera test for this Costa Rica shoot, Costa Rica shoot we've got coming up. And we're using a, a Sony FX6 camera, which is a really small, lightweight camera um, with a Tamron lens. And it's got really good uh, automatic focus. So it does eye detection. So as long as it can see an eye, it locks on to that eye and it'll just focus for you. Uh, now, up until like last year, no professional cameraman would ever consider using autofocus but now the technology is so good anyway it's so good but the old dog has to go out and test it before he's willing to put his faith in it and so we took it to these woods just outside london this forest <clears throat> and we were running around and chase i was chasing people and um just seeing if it really did what it says it does and it's incredible so there are benefits to it um and the reason we're doing that by the way is not to be lazy but where we're going to be shooting in the jungle underfoot is so difficult that to actually move at relative speed safely as well as shooting is really difficult but if i can put the camera on a wide shot and basically look at what i'm doing with my feet safely while just pointing in the right direction the camera will do the work for me so that's the beauty of it. Likewise, you know, when I film bear jumping out, you know, skydiving from a helicopter or whatever, um, we rig the helicopter with all these different angles of GoPros. You know, I strap a GoPro to his foot looking back up so that when he's under canopy, he's kind of looking like that and it, it films his face so he can do a piece yeah, of yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, the benefits of it are amazing. And, and the other thing that's interesting, I think, is... I, I think I'm I'm not the normal cameraman where I know some cameramen in my kind of peer group who they've done really well, uh, they're successful, but they're very proud about they only want to use a certain level of camera because they think that you know that that's what they should be using because everything's perfect and you know, whatever. I'm I'm of the believer, I'm a believer of content is king. So you know, look at the success of YouTube or TikTok. It doesn't matter the quality of what you shoot. It's what you shoot that matters. Uh, If you get a beautifully shot story, short story on YouTube, some people will watch it and very few, yeah, there will be a few people, but only a few who will really appreciate, appreciate the beautiful shots. 
But if you get a picture on there of something where a bomb goes off or something major happens, everybody's going to watch that, even if it's on some crappy phone, you know, Nokia six ten or something. Yeah, yeah. It's like as long as, as long as the content's there. So I, I'm a real believer in you can better your camera, you can do lots of stuff to make a more beautiful shot from an artistic point of view. But at the end of the day, people will look at your work, people who enjoy your work, or people will even buy your work if the content is good. So, you know. I think it, I think it goes sort of back to this sort of instant gratification sort of model that we're sort of falling into nowadays where people think, oh, if I spend, you know, £5,000 on a Canon whatever then i'm going to take amazing pictures but actually if you don't put yourself in the position to take if you don't get your ass out of bed at four o'clock to to get a sunrise That's right you can you, you can take you can use any camera you could use a 10 year old digital camera totally if, right if the content is there and i think that it sort of says a lot if you it is a hundred percent content even even with these uh tiktoks and things that you see 99% of it is just shit, really. Yeah. You know, a lot a lot of it, occasionally you'll see one sort of great little short film, you know, or something that's got really good content on it. And obviously, nowadays, everybody is a content creator. It has just become that's this right. massive, this massive thing. And if you, somebody like yourself who's a professional filmmaker, let's say. Yeah. I mean, I, I was interested, I listened to some Christopher Nolan um podcasts uh where he used because i watched tenet and i watched interstellar and watched all the films and i was listening to sort of i was really intrigued i mean i'm not a filmmaker at all never will be but i love the the the, the way his passion and how he filmed things and he uses one camera in the movie whereas somebody like ridley scott uh, with gladiator he's got 27 cameras filming yeah. one one shot as yeah. christopher nolan was and he was saying exactly the same thing it's the content of the, how well prepared we set up that shot, that camera. You know, I and mean, that's taken it to the sort of X, X degree, you know. Well, on, on Expedition Mungo specifically, um, you seem to have quite, you have to have a light setup because you're, you know, you're in the, the wilderness of jungles and deserts yeah. and, and other things. But how so, do you. You'd be surprised. Yeah. Well, you need yeah you need generators and everything like that but yeah. for, for that kind of project did you do you now use that on on the same kind of blueprint on other projects do you have your sort of all your equipment dialed in and you know exactly what your kit is um is no you have to i mean th th there is like a kind of you know, cameras like anything, like cars, they go through phases, right? Where everybody wants a four by four, everybody an SUV, everybody wants an electric or a hybrid or whatever. So there are cameras at the moment where everybody uses them. And that can be because they do certain things or that can be because they're at a certain price. Uh, so they're cheaper than the big Arri. A Sony might be cheaper, but it can pretty much do what the Arri does, but just for a cheaper option. And obviously, only industry is about money, the profit margin, and the bottom line. So uh, sometimes your cameras are dictated to you by budget. So um, most of them will be like Netflix has a a, a, a kind of um, what's the word? A kind of benchmark. You know, we only use these cameras because okay. of resolution, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. A kind of quality control. Um, and then others are purely done out of access and, you know, what, what's the best camera for the job. So when I did Charlie Borman's thing, I literally used this really small, it was an XF305, a Canon XF305, tiny, like, it looked like a kind of normal tourist, tourist um, camera. Um, but put that in the hands of a seasoned professional, you can make a BBC2 you know, eight part documentary out of it, which we did. Um, whereas, uh, you know, in the same way, you can you, you can use an iPhone to do something, and and even in broadcast TV, they, there is a certain amount of you know there are specifications uh, and spec checks and stuff that you have to comply with uh, in your delivery. But there are certain amounts of minicam footage you can use, which is under res, or you. Can 
use a certain amount of iPhone footage. Because I mean, I mean, coming back to your story, your your um, point about going to buy a nice camera and think you're going to make a nice, you know, nice pictures. I went out and bought a Canon uh, Mark III 5D, beautiful camera. At the time, it was like state of the art, like the thing that every stills photographer has. And I bought a few really nice lenses with it. But you know what? It was so bulky because they're big cameras. I never took it anywhere with me because it was just all like to carry around another flight case. Um, you know, if I'm going to the park with the kids, you know, or I don't know, going on a holiday or something, what I don't want is a busman's holiday where I'm carrying on flight cases, got loads of kit to set up and, you know, ready for the shop now sort of thing. Whereas, you know, I, I, I actually sold that and then went and bought an upgraded iPhone and all my photos now are on my iPhone. And the reason, the, the reason, the beauty of that, and I can take great photos with this, is because it's always on me. Hmm. You know, so, so when my, one of my boys does something, I'm just like, oh, bang, I've got it. Because it's right in my pocket. Um, yeah, and obviously, that's different if you are a professional doing a professional shoot uh, of headshots or portraits or something. Then, of course, it's nice to have a really nice camera. But I think for everyday content, you know, it's all about access accessibility. Mm. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And everything's with these iPhones and Sony's, and the they're all Carl Zeiss lenses, yeah. or you know, they're all they are, they are phenomenal. Yeah, and, and quite often, yeah, I'm I'm I go against the grain in a way, and I think quite often I'll challenge people who are doing a show, and they'll kind of say. Yeah, we're doing a entertainment show, which is a very light entertainment show, but we want to use you know these amazing lenses or whatever, yeah, you know, these primes and whatever, because it's got to look great. It's like, you know, I understand that, but you know, the average Joe Blow sitting at home eating their TV dinner don't give a shit about what it's, you know, if they they don't even know, they won't even notice if it looks no. nice or not. So that's more of a kind of pride or kind of you know kind of keeping up with the joneses type thing yeah. um but yeah what one uh, one uh, question i do want to ask you is on expedition mungo again was how much um obviously you you were at the forefront of it but you had a sort of team around you so it's a hundred percent a team effort but how how much did you get involved in any post-production did you learn any new skills you know in terms of editing it down no i didn't do any post no um, the way it works for me as a cameraman is I, uh, I often liken us to the cavalry okay. <clears throat> and that we charge in, we shoot the place up and then we get out <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. Because, because the way it works for crews is we'll, we'll go in there, shoot it, hand over the rushes and then we're on to the next job. Okay. Um, whereas the actual editing will, can go on for another three to six months before it's delivered to the broadcaster. And then it could be another month before the broadcaster shows it. So, so when we're shooting something, um, I think we shot Expedition Mungo in the kind of autumn of, I can't remember when it was, 2017, I think it was. Um, but that wouldn't have been shown on TV until 2018. Um, right. It wouldn't have been launched in probably early summer the next year. Yeah, I was I was interested because on on one of the forest Galante extinct or alive, he finds the Galapagos tortoise on the Galapagos Islands. He finds it after a hundred years, right? Uh, and they exactly the same as you. They they had a small crew. They shot everything. They found the tortoise with two local guys from the Galapagos. But then, when it went into be edited by uh, I want to say. Might might have been animal. Yeah, it's probably Animal Planet because it's on Discovery, yeah. the same same as your yeah. show. Yeah, it got edited where um, the two guys that found it basically rebelled against the way that they'd been treated in finding the tortoise, and they said, "F you, we found it. Your TV show hijacked us finding it, then edited edited it to make it look like Forrest found the tortoise." And it caused, and he talks about it on a podcast, it caused this real big sort of issue. And that's finding a Galapagos tortoise. It's massive. Yeah. So I, I was really intrigued to, to talk to you about, 
you know, when when everything was sort of edited out and you sit down with your family, I don't know how you would do it, and you sort yeah. of watch Expedition yeah, Mungo yeah. in its final, you know, yeah. do you sort of look back on it and think, wow, that, that's amazing, or were the little things when you thought, no, I'm not sure about oh, that? Or, I, I you think, know, did, yeah. did you have any feedback? It's, I mean, I think it's like anything. I mean, if you if you paint a picture, people will come over your shoulder and go, oh, it's great, you know, but you can always, you know, there are aspects that could always be better. I mean, when you're making a TV show, there are things that sometimes I have to shoot things that I think is rubbish because as in, I'm not saying a lie, but just as in could have been better or I feel is needless, but, they, but the director thinks that it's really important. So you shoot it because that's your job. Um, so, I mean, certainly with Expedition Mungo, I, I, I didn't want anything to do with it because otherwise I'd be too worried about, you know, I don't know, I, I'd like to think I wouldn't be, but I'd probably be worried about how I came across or was I walking funny or did I look weird or, do you know what I mean, whatever. Yeah. And I just thought, that's not what I'm in this for. You know, I don't want to become one of those people. So let's shoot it. I don't really want to see it. And then let's, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll watch it when it comes out. And yeah, yeah. and also... It's a real, it's a real act, and as it should be, an act of delegation. I think, in the same way that people say to me, "This is the show that we want to make. Will you shoot it for us?" And I'll say, "Yeah, okay. You know, what are we thinking?" And we discuss it, and then they delegate and they, you know, give me the responsibility to go and form a team, get the right crew together, and then we go and shoot it. Um, and then. In the same way, there's a whole nother team that once, like the cavalry, the cavalry hand over the footage to the post department team, and then it's over to them. You know, they're, you know, I, 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 you know what I hate in the past, sometimes I've had people from the post department, the editors say, why didn't you get more cutaways of this or that? And literally, I feel like throttling them <laughs> because it was shitting down with rain I had, you know, an ant crawling up my ass or something. <laughs> we've been, we've done a seventeen-hour day, and I hadn't eaten. You know, that's why I didn't do it. So fuck off, you know, yeah, yeah, etc. And and it, it never comes to that. But sometimes you just think because you've got no idea what it's like on the ground when you're giving it everything. And yes, you missed an obvious shot, but deal with it because th there's a there's a saying that we cameramen have is that you can always save it in the edit. And the truth is, I mean, again, talking about technology of cameras, but the technology of editing software is phenomenal these days. Um, yeah, like, you know, everybody knows of Photoshop with the advertising campaigns. You, know, you can have Brad Pitt who's got acne spots or whatever, and you just take them all out so he looks amazing. And then everybody believes that he's perfect, you know. And in the same way, you, you can do, you can adjust overexposed footage. You can, you can, totally recolor it if the color balance is wrong the only thing you can't do in the edit is to focus it so as long as it's in focus you can save pretty much anything and also if you're shooting at high res now like 8k 6k 4k you can even take just a wide shot and then actually punch in and then just use so you can even recompose the shot to how you would prefer it if you've got the time and the money or you can paint stuff out so this stuff behind me, that plant, that you could just paint it out so it disappears. You know, it's just you, you can do so much with the edit. Um, and that's changed because in the you know, years ago, they literally had to use what, what was there, and it was either good or it's bad. So I think in that way, growing up in the era that I did of camera work, you really learned the true art form of it, where mm -hmm. you had to get it or it wasn't got. Whereas now you can kind of fudge your way through it and recover bad footage yeah and it's it's a bit like it's probably the equivalent of a music artist who's in a studio who hits a bum note you can just fix the bum note yeah. and yeah all, all the people famously singing out the tune. you get these tuning machines that can bring them you know some of some of the you know i, I worked on um, x factor for years and you hear about you know there's lots of pop stars out there who have used retuning software because they can't really sing you know, and the record companies just make them sing. And then they, you know, when it comes to a live performance, they, they mime it because they can't really sing. Yeah, it's mental. But Millie Vanilli all over yeah, again. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Paul, but Expedition Mungo, you should be super proud of it. I uh, absolutely love it. Uh, every, 
every now and again, I just re I'm a bit of one of these for like re watching things. So, like yeah. River Monsters, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, they, they say you know that it's you've got a mental disorder if you like watching re watching things because it means that you're just going back to your comfort zone, you yeah. Know? There's yeah. something about it, but I, yeah, every now and again, I put it on with a wife. Uh, we watched the whole thing a few weeks ago because oh, okay. I was, I was making some notes and things, and she she told me to tell you that you've got a very lovely voice. Oh, she, she, she liked she liked your voice. That was a standout thing. For oh, really? So she, you, nice. Your voice comes across very well. Awesome. But yeah, no, it's a, it's a super show. Um, so what's the plan? You mentioned Costa Rica. What what's coming this year for you? Yeah, well, I'm I'm shooting. So, I mean, I, I've kind of, with, with regards to being in front of the camera, I've kind of, um, I've fallen in that hole of I'm I'm white and I'm middle class, so people don't want me anymore, <laughs> which yeah. is very true. You know, yeah, I'm at, at the moment. It's all about ticking diversity boxes. I'm not bitter about that because I support that. I think that's really important, but it does mean that people just aren't commissioning white middle class men anymore um so that's fine uh, yeah I've, I've kind of been there done been there got the t-shirt yeah i can say i've done it which i have um and uh yeah so i'm i'm back shooting so i'm i'm doing this uh, project for the bbc in india i can't say anything more than that about it but that could be out next year um and then uh i'm off to costa rica to do a big netflix show uh with bear um yeah later on in the year so um wow. Yeah, so 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 far so good, but it's that kind of you know it's that freelance life. I've been doing it for a long time. You know, I I, I know what's happening for the next couple of months, but after that, I've got no idea. So it's all on a wing and a prayer, really. Yeah, uh, you're ju you're just networking with contacts, and I suppose yeah. in your I suppose in your game as well, a lot of it's on the not on the never never, but it's on the sort of maybe never, and it's, you're hearing about little projects coming it's, in, you're waiting, especially now. Especially now. And I think. I think because of the eco economical crisis and stuff we've had um, and just the uncertainty and then there are all the LA strikes, the writer strikes in LA that had a massive effect on our industry. And also the whole fact of the terrestrial TV is it's a sinking ship really because they can't compete with the streamers, the Amazon Primes, the Netflixes, the Apple TVs. They just can't compete. Um, and everything's on demand now, is it? I mean, no, I don't know anybody who watches live TV apart from sport. Um, so yeah, so I think the whole industry is changing. So I'm trying to kind of improvise and adapt within that about what my role is. Um, so I, I mean, but the, I, I think, I think the, my safety net is the fact of that I do know my craft and I do know how to tell a story through moving picture, um, be it very high budget or no budget. Um, and because of that, I think, you know, I know an art form that lots of youngsters who are technically very good haven't learned the art form of telling that story. Um, so I think I'm trying to adapt into that. So I think it, it probably will be more content creation for people. I think that's the way it has to go, mm. uh, particularly brands. I mean, everybody's got to have a podcast. Everybody's got to have a, a an on, online um presence if you're a brand these days so there's still a demand for that um in my kind of game but also i don't know i mean part of me just wants to kind of retire and walk the dog you know yeah nothing beats that but nothing nothing kind of beats when you've got sort of 20 or 30 years of experience it's not necessarily like you say about how to technically operate a camera it's about the 20 hour day it's about oh. the the mindset getting yeah. up in the morning getting yeah. prepared yeah. making sure everything's set up it's having all the 90 percent of things behind the camera that people just think oh i want to turn a camera on and shoot but yeah. that, that that's 10 percent of it 90 yeah. percent of it is is the oh. networking talking to oh. people and that's something that you can't buy and it is the experience yeah so i know i mean i went on a recce for this costa rica job <clears throat> and loads of the production people who were there had never been in a jungle ever so they were like turning up in their plimsolls and their shorts like, like as if they're going down to the gym and then we turned up in the reception with all our jungle gear on like boots full you know full kind of you know trousers and long sleeves and hats and whatever buffs 
Um, and they're like, oh, you're a bit overdressed, aren't you? You kind of go, well, no, the opposite, actually. And sure enough, they get back at the end of the day and say, now we understand why we're wearing that because they got bitten, they got a thorn in their foot, they're sunburned. You know, it's just like, so So that kind of experience. And then they were saying, well, how do we shoot in this environment? And you're like, well, shooting's the easy part, but it's about constant hydration, about snacking, about wearing the right gear on your feet. I mean, yeah, we're, we're in this area of jungle, which is, in theory, it's quite benign. So you're walking along, and you could be in a wood in, in you know, the southern counties of England. Mm. Um, it, that's how it feels at times. But it's a jungle. And then you're walking along, and then suddenly you see this flash of green go in front of your feet, and it's a tree snake, which is very highly venomous. And you think, that, you know, that's a real stark reminder of where we are. So when you think about putting your bag down while you, you know, take a photo of something or, you know, and get a load of soldier ants in it or fire ants, then you're going to learn, you know, the hard way. Um, or if you kneel down or go and rest by a tree and you, you know, get, get a snake around your area or a scorpion or a spider, then you're going to learn the hard way. So it's all about that experience on the outside that you kind of bring to the table. Um, and and you you and what i love as well you're kind of building uh you're building a brand in terms of we are the specialist crew who yeah. can go into these environments yeah. and i and i guess and it's a bit niche because other people will think oh sod that i'm not i'm not gonna do that so you you've almost built like uh, your own unique production crew going into these environments you know and and to be honest for me it makes the best tv though those kind of documentaries i absolutely love them you know yeah where you can see the background you can see how things are set up it's fantastic telly so uh so thanks for thanks for doing it and uh mungo i'm i'm conscious of the time you've got to get your kids and and i i super appreciate your time thanks for uh taking the time to talk with me expedition mungo is on discovery channel in norway i don't know what, what format if can it stream in the UK still and US yeah. and everywhere? I can't remember which one it's on, but you can find it. Look, just, just put it in Google. You'll yeah, Discovery, it. Discovery Plus, I think. Yeah, on YouTube as well. Yeah, 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 and YouTube. Yeah, brilliant, Paul. Uh, thanks again, Thank and uh, good good luck with everything in twenty twenty four. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please give me a like and a subscribe via your podcast provider. Uh, If you've got any questions or you wish to be a guest on the show, please send me a message. The best place, probably via Instagram, uh, aim high and achieve podcast. Thank you.